0: Growing up in Traverse City in the 1960s and 70s, Doug Stanton knew he was going to be a writer. From 14, I wanted to be a poet. Problem was, he'd never met a writer and had no idea how to become one. So one day, Doug decided to reach out to an author named Jim Harrison, who lived just up the road in Leland. Harrison published dozens of works during his long career, including the famous novel True North and the novella Legends of the Fall, which was later turned into a movie starring Brad Pitt. Back then, um...
1: I mean, I couldn't drive, of course, so I wrote him a letter to his home in Lake Illinois, Michigan, saying, Dear Mr. Harrison, um, I would love to read one of your novels. If you wouldn't mind sending it to me, I'll I'll pay you uh, later when I can. (laughs) And he wrote back, uh, Dear Doug, I'm not a bookstore, but here's your novel. (laughs) You don't have to pay me anything.
0: Today, mentorship in all shapes and colors I'm Tommy Andres, and this is Creative Coast. This podcast is all about the creative entrepreneurs who call Northern Michigan their home. And for many of the folks we've profiled so far, it's Traverse City's many offerings that lured them here. But Doug Stanton's journey is different.
1: I'm a number one New York Times bestselling author who is able to
0: do that from his own hometown. Doug was born in Traverse City and wanted to stay, but he also had aspirations to become a nationally recognized writer. So he had to write the book, so to speak, on just how to do that.
1: When you look at, say, a kitchen spoon, you kind of hold it up and you can see, oh, I know how they made the spoon. They took the metal, they bent it, they turned it into a cup, there's the handle. But when you hold up a book, It really, if you think about it, is a mysterious object. I mean, how do they sew the pages in? How do they they get all those words in between those two covers? So what we have is what a writer makes. But what we don't
0: often have in our lives is a pathway to find the tools and how the writer does that making. Some kids may have been put off by Jim Harrison's gruff response to that letter requesting a book, but not Doug. He was thrilled to get a copy of Harrison's book, Farmer. And years later, when Doug was an adult and saw Jim Harrison at the Bluebird Restaurant and Tavern in Leland, it was that letter that gave him the courage to approach the author in person.
1: It was New Year's Eve and just after midnight, and I looked down the bar, and there was Jim
0: Harrison standing, leaning against the bar. Doug had started writing in high school at the Interlochen Arts Academy. He had gone on to Hampshire College, got his master's degree from the esteemed Writers' Workshop at the University of Iowa, and in his mid twenties, he was teaching English at a college down south.
1: I said hello. Uh, he asked what I was doing, and I said I was teaching five sections of composition in Monroe, Louisiana, but that I wanted to write full time. And he said uh, drunkenly, I think, "Well, that's no problem at all. Uh, you just write something, and I'll we'll help. We'll we'll see if we can't get it published." So. I literally thought at that moment that all I had to do was quit my job in Louisiana and uh, start writing, and I would start making a living.
0: Doug went back to Louisiana and put pen to paper.
1: And I wrote an 18-page essay. It was about family history, reminiscences of my uh, grandparents' That was completely incomprehensible and, and just plain bad. I did, however, send it to Jim, and true to his word, uh, he sent it on to an editor named Terry McDonald. Now, Terry was Hunter Thompson's editor. He was a legend
0: and still is in the world of editing. Terry McDonald had just started his own magazine called Smart. Terry said, this is unpublishable, but send me something else.
1: That something else in the long run or turned out to be that essay about proposing to Ann.
0: Ann Stanton was a reporter at the Traverse City Record Eagle when she first met Doug.
2: I grew up in Davison, went to high school with Michael Moore. And um, it was in the 70s, and it was a time of rebellion and really a sense that you could uh, make a difference in the world. So I worked, I used to write for the Davison Index, and I just fell in love with... Journalism, and in love with trying to give a voice to people who otherwise did not have a voice. But Anne took a bit of a circuitous route to her career. My first degree was in business because I was afraid that I just couldn't make it. As, you know, at that time, the, the salaries for reporters was really low. <laughs> but um, I decided to go back and I did get a master's in journalism and... Came to the Record Eagle.
0: So it was Anne's first job as a reporter at the Record Eagle that brought her up to Traverse City, and where fate would put her in the path of a dreamer still finding his way back there.
2: I think I was about 30. And at that time in Traverse City, there were not a lot of single 30 year olds around, and I was complaining to a sister, Debbie. Um and she said, Well, I have a brother and he loves to write too and he works down in Louisiana. And I thought, Oh great, Louisiana. <laughs> but um she did tell him about me and so one day just before Christmas he walked into the newsroom. I was home
1: and um I was walking by the record eagle down the sidewalk and I remembered that about six months earlier my sister Debbie had mentioned a person named Anne in the newsroom and that she worked there and that I would meet her at some point. So without knowing her last name, because we had never met, <laughs> I simply walked in and said, um, is Anne here? <laughs> Hoping that four, three
0: or four different women didn't
1: walk out.
0: Thankfully, there was just one. That day, Doug and Ann grabbed coffee at Woolworths, a bite at Stacy's, and they met up again and again. So Ann and I were
1: wandering around, getting to know each other during that break I had from teaching.
0: It was a week later on that same break that Doug ran into Jim Harrison at the Bluebird, who said, "You just write something, and I'll we'll help. We'll, we'll see if we can't get it published." And who connected Doug with that editor named Terry McDonald, who started a magazine called Smart, for whom Doug wrote his first essay that was completely
1: unpublishable.
0: But Terry McDonald gave Doug another chance, and thankfully, Doug now had a secret weapon, Anne. As the couple got more serious, Doug moved back to Traverse City, where Anne helped turn him from a poet into a writer.
1: I had never written any prose. I mean, i might to repeat that. I'd really never written any prose. Now, Anne ended up teaching me everything I would know about how to interview and really what a lead was, how to spell the word lead, L-E-D-E, um, what a nut graph
0: is. But Anne didn't just help coach Doug into writing more like a journalist. She also inspired his first published piece, which he wrote in 1990 the same year the couple was married. It was the story of how they fell in love.
1: This essay called um, Marry Me, Marry Me that was
0: published in Smart Magazine.
2: You know what's really funny is um, Doug actually was written up in the Record Eagle (laughs) because he had published an article in Smart Magazine. That's how small a town it was. Yeah.
1: Wow. You get published (laughs) for being published. I like that.
0: Like any good character in a story, Jim Harrison pops up over and over in Doug and Ann Stanton's life. In Doug's early days as a freelance writer, his phone rang. Jim Harrison called me and said, the editor at Esquire has been fired. On Friday, Terry
1: got hired as the editor of Esquire. On Monday, he said, now we all have jobs at Esquire. So I flew to New York and went into Terry's office, and he looked at me as so we'd not met, and he really also knew that I had very little experience. And he said, what do you think of John Mellencamp?
0: That is John Cougar Mellencamp,
1: well, I was born in a small town. who in
0: 1992 was trying to ditch the Cougar and was starring in his first film. And I said, oh man, John Mellencamp, he
1: has to be my favorite, my all-time favorite rock and roll singer of the ages. And Terry said, really? And of course, none of this is true, but I, I want the job so bad. And he goes, well, okay then. He said, if you can get Mellencamp to say yes, you got the job. So I walked out into the hallway and made a phone call to his publicist. And I said, literally, hi, this is Doug Stanton calling from Esquire magazine, which was true, actually, because I was actually in Esquire magazine. <laughs> and I was calling from there. But she thought that I was on staff or I had some type of credential position. there. <laughs> we would love to run a cover story on John Mellencamp and uh, his new album in this movie that he's making. And she goes, really? And I said, yeah. She goes, well, okay. I'm sure I'll say yes. So I hung up and walked up to Terry. goes, well, he's in. And Terry said, great, you got the job.
0: This was the golden age of magazine journalism, a time when publications spent big bucks for deep dive stories.
1: I spent three months on the road with Mellencamp. I, my expenses were about $35,000. My fee was $5,000. And um, by the time it was over, we both kind of like each other, but we're tired of each other. And that's how I learned to write long-form magazine
0: profile, you know,
1: with which I really
0: made a living for about eight years at Esquire. So, Anne, tell me a little bit about coaching Doug. So he comes to you and he's like, I've got this work, but I don't necessarily know what I'm doing. I'm a writer, but I'm not a journalist necessarily yet. So how do you how do you coach Doug? How do you work with Doug to uh, to make this happen?
2: Uh, you know, any. First started writing magazine articles, I I mostly really helped with structure. You know, beginning, middle, and end, and they'd be, you know, two parallel storylines. So Doug at first was a little skeptical. Am I I a good student, though? Yeah, but then he would send the story in, and then the editor would say exactly the same thing. (laughs) And I would say, see, told you. I said, skip the embarrassment the next time and just, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But, uh, you know, and I've learned a lot from Doug in terms of writing and writing. So it sounds like it's really happening just then by just picking in all of, by super reporting that you can really recreate a scenario. So we've, we've worked well together, you know, working Together is the easy part. The other part is, what's for dinner?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I love working with Anne. I think she feels the same way. Yeah, we have more trouble grocery shopping.
0: Doug became a contributing editor for Outside and Men's Journal, in addition to Esquire. And he's got some crazy stories from those days. He played basketball with George Clooney, did yoga with Sting, and he made quite a name for himself along the way.
1: Some editor called and said, Denzel Washington wants you to write a profile about him. And I said, Denzel Washington? He goes, yeah, he was reading a profile you wrote on a plane with his agent. And so then they called the magazine see if they could order up their own profile. And I'd gotten really good at it because it's basically their character sketches, and it was always satisfying the kind of secret novelist in me to do it. But I also knew that I was writing things that people were reading in the O'Hare airport and probably walking away from and not pondering over for a while. So when my editor from Men's Journal called, I went down to Indianapolis, Indiana, and met 124 survivors of USS Indianapolis.
0: In the late 1990s, Doug got an assignment that would change his life. His editor asked him to do a sort of Where Are They Now profile on survivors of the USS Indianapolis, which was a US warship that sunk in shark infested waters after being struck by Japanese torpedoes in 1945. People
1: listening may know that story from JAWS.
0: Japanese submarine slammed two torpedoes into our side chief. He was coming back from the island of Tinian Delady, and just delivered the bomb, the
1: Hiroshima bomb. At the time, I thought it was an apocryphal story that a ship had carried the components of the atomic bomb Little Boy, which would be dropped on Hiroshima, that the ship was sunk, that they survived in the water for five days, and that shark attack was a murderous event daily for them, and that the Robert Shaw, Captain Quint in
0: the movie Jaws, is a fictional survivor of this incident. Quickly into Doug's research, he realized that there was a lot more than a magazine feature to the story of the USS Indianapolis, so he started to write a book with help and guidance from Anne.
1: She was instrumental. We literally printed out, I don't know, 75 pages of the book and got scotch tape and laid them on the kitchen table and taped them end to end so it looked like a film strip. So <laughs> there might be seven pages in a strip and did that, for made 10 strips, and then tape those to the dining room wall. And when you opened the door, by the way, to the house, or window, the window, the entire, all the uh, tape pages would kind of wave like an like a
0: underwater kelp bed. It was a hard slog, but Doug finished his first book called In Harm's Way. It would publish in 2001. But before copies even hit the shelves, Doug knew things were going to be different.
1: The day that I knew that I didn't have to write profiles of movie stars and singers anymore was when my friend called me (laughs) out of the blue (laughs) and he said, Doug, uh, turn on CNN, Tom Brokaw's talking about your book on Larry King. I'm like, what? Because the book hadn't been published yet. And he goes, yeah. I goes, Dave, have you been drinking? He goes, yes, I have been drinking, but he's still talking about your book.
0: In Harm's Way spent more than six months on the New York Times bestseller list, and it turned Doug from a writer into an author. But book ideas are not easy to come by, so after the media blitz for In Harm's Way had died down, Doug and Anne decided to help Anne's old friend from high school with a little project.
2: I think the first thing uh, Doug did was volunteer for the film festival and put that together with Michael Moore and a photographer, John Robert Williams.
0: Doug and Ann were two of the founders of the Traverse City Film Festival, working with famous documentary filmmaker Michael Moore to revitalize the state theater in the center of downtown and bring an annual slate of dozens of films to the area.
2: We used to talk about it over dinner, how much fun it would be. And then one day, we just made a decision, let's do it. And we said, there was six weeks to get it done. And then Doug had to go to Afghanistan. But we pulled a lot of friends together to volunteer. It was crazy.
0: Doug went to Afghanistan to work on a new book called Horse Soldiers. It was about a small band of special forces soldiers who were ordered to ride into Afghanistan on horseback to fight the Taliban just after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. It was published in 2005, got tons of press, and was even turned into a film called 12 Strong by Jerry Bruckheimer.
1: All right, let's do this, boys. Heads down, stay safe. All right,
2: good to
0: go. But when Doug traveled around the country on his book tour, he started to notice a disconnect.
1: For instance, I was in Dallas, and I had, oh, I don't know, 20 people show up, and there were 36 folding chairs set out at a Barnes & Noble in Dallas on a Thursday rainy evening at 6 p.m. Now, at the same time, the book is number two on the New York Times list, which is not easy to do. So it's selling thousands of copies, Yet people aren't meeting me at the bookstores. So I started asking, as I traveled around the country, the book escorts, the people who pick up at the airport, they pick up all writers and and shuttle them around to interviews and stuff. What was working? So I collected all the gold bits, the sweetest parts of every author event that these people had witnessed and came back. And that's how we crafted the National Writers Series.
0: Doug had just helped launch the Traverse City Film Festival, which brought the work of some of the best filmmakers in the world to Northern Michigan, so he thought, why not do something similar for authors? Unfortunately, that epiphany hit him in the midst of having drinks with friends.
2: While I was working full-time at Northern Express, I organized this big event, and I made it look so easy that (laughs) Doug then invited Elmore Leonard to town in July, and I could see what was cooking in his mind. I said. Doug, do not please organize the National Writers Series because I, he'd been talking to a friend about doing a logo. I said, you know, you did your volunteer thing with the film festival. <laughs> that night, much to my surprise, <laughs> <laughs> he stood at the lectern and said, this is so much fun. Let's do it again. We're going to start the National Writers Series in Traverse City. And that's how it all began.
1: Again, it's a small town. The next morning, the banner headline on the front page was, Stanton announces (laughs) writer's
0: series. And now my goose was cooked because we really had to go through with it. Doug's vision was to create a new kind of event for writers, one that would get them out of the bookstores and into a theater. Typically, an author event is kind of boring.
1: You'd go into a bookstore, the author would drone on for 40 minutes at the lectern with a styrofoam cup of water. Uh, read from their book, and then sign books and leave. But we're competing now with so many other ways of interaction with fascinating things in the world that what we do on stage is try to create a moment of theater where you're leaning in around the campfire of this particular conversation. And I did most of them at the very beginning, and I did them exactly like I did my interviews for Esquire. The whole thing is an attempt just to allow the person to reveal themselves three or four times in a magazine story and also three or four times on the stage wherein their own humanity is
0: revealed But Doug and Ann didn't just want to expose the people of Traverse City to authors from around the world. They wanted the world to see that Traverse City was the place for the next generation of authors. So the couple worked with the local public school districts to design training for young writers, training they would get school credit for, training cut from the same cloth as the Interlochen Arts Academy or the Iowa Writers Workshop that Doug had attended. But instead of costing tens of thousands of dollars, it would be free. I
1: said, if we can... Hire a writer from the greater world to come into Traverse City, form a workshop with a cohort of, say, 10 to 20 students, and then bring our guest writers who are coming in from across the country and have them come in and do master classes, and during the week have the writer in residence who we've hired teach writing, then
0: I bet we can do that. The Stantons called the program for public high school juniors and seniors Front Street Writers.
1: Let's say you're a young person uh, and you wake up in Buckley, Michigan. Show up one morning on a Tuesday and Lee Child is sitting in your writing workshop. And the morning before that, he'd been on the Today Show in New York talking about his new Jack Reacher book. And uh, Lee did come in. He sat down. The writer in residence at the time said, we're talking about revision. Mr. Child, this has been our unit now for about two weeks. (laughs) And Lee looked at them and said, revision, I don't believe in it. (laughs) Who needs it? And it was the perfect teaching moment where you can pull the rug out from your own preconceived notions and create confusion and then provide the student with tools to find clarity.
0: In addition to the National Writers Series and Front Street Writers, Ann Stanton also helped found a publishing company called Mission Point Press that helps Northern Michigan authors get their work into print, which means that Northern Michigan went from a place where 40 years ago, a young writer growing up had no idea how to pursue his vocation to arguably one of the best places in the country to develop young writing talent. So the writer series has been going for 10 years. Front Street Writers has been going a little bit less than that, right? So the legacy hasn't yet set in, but there are authors that will come from your efforts. So I'm curious what it will be like to hold a book from an author who came through sort of the Doug and Ann Stanton system and how that will compare to holding your own work.
1: Um, I think at that point... We say, scene, and we drop the curtain.
0: Doug and Ann are proof that no dream is too big for a small town like Traverse City.
1: It is the right size, wherein it is a kind of town that says yes to practically any idea. (laughs) No matter how kooky, expensive, it's not a community of no, it's a community of yes. Now, whether or not things will succeed, we can't predict. But it's also the right size in that you can have an impact.
0: To learn more about the National Writers Series, visit nationalwritersseries.org. To find out about Front Street Writers, visit frontstreetwriters.com. And if you want more info on Mission Point Press, go to missionpointpress.com. You can also check out Doug Stanton's personal website at dougstanton.com. Creative Coast is a podcast series brought to you by Traverse Connect, the Grand Traverse region's economic development organization, and is produced by me, Tommy Andres, and Maria Byrne for our company, Heirloom Media. That's spelled A-I-R. The music is composed by Josh Hoisington. This podcast series is made possible thanks to generous support and funding from the Michigan Film and Digital Media Office at Michigan's Economic Development Corporation. You can visit Traverse Connect's website at traverseconnect.com.